Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Record Club. This week, we're covering the iconic Tracy Chapman album, and it is my great pleasure to introduce our guest host, Rupa Dasgupta, a graphic artist from Asbury Park, New Jersey. Take it away, Rupa. All right, so I actually, I didn't prepare any like opening remarks, so I'm just gonna jump right into it. So who remembers 1988? All right, who does not remember 1988? Okay. <laughs> So what can you guys tell me about 1988? What do you remember? What were like the words that you would describe to do? What was like the ethos of the 80s? It was, well, it was, our, it was my college graduation. So 30 years ago, I was doing that. I was also the music director for WMCX at the time. So it's quite the tenure. Thank yeah, you. so there was a lot of in excess. I do remember the music being certainly was a combination of synth and the Duran Durans of the world, but then there was also a shift into some earthier things like Suzanne Vega mm -hmm. and Tracy Chapman. So I think it was an interesting time to preside over music and program that into WMCX. Perfect. Anyone else? I mean, that covers a lot of it, for sure. A lot of hair. A lot of hair. Yes, yes, for sure. So this section of my presentation for the evening is about the landscape of the late 80s and what it was like for Tracy to suddenly come on the scene. So I thought this was a great one. So these examples are not only having to do with music, but just culture in general. So let's see if this works. The evolution in corporate America seems to be survival of the unfittest. Well, in my book, you either do it right or you get eliminated. In the last seven deals that I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who have made a pre-tax profit of $12 billion. Thank you. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. And what was going on musically? So one of the great artifacts I found over the course of my research for this was this September 1988 issue of Rolling Stone. First time Tracy was on the cover of a major magazine, I believe. But one of the gems in it is the billboard chart in the back that tells you what else is popular. So apparently the number one song at the time in the country was this. <laughs> So I think we got the, got the idea. <laughs> Does anyone remember that song? Yeah. Not only do I remember it, but if you're going to start hating on George Michael, I'm oh, out. I'm not, all right, I'm sorry. <laughs> I should apologize, but I think we can all agree that. I'm joking. When it comes to the, the oeuvre of George Michael, that doesn't crap the top ten. Yeah, that's hardly his high point <laughs> right there. And then, of course, there's this. So that for the next five minutes. <laughs> so onto that scene, we got this. This is June 1988. Don't you know? Talking about a revolution that sounds like a whisper. Don't you know? Talking about a revolution that sounds like a whisper. While they're standing in the welfare lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation.
So now I have to ask, how did you all get into Tracy? I was a fan of Neil Diamond, and he had a song on one of his albums. And the story was that she was recording at the same time he was. And he said, I'd love to put that on my album. And she said, it will probably sell better than mine. So yeah. And apparently <laughs> she really killed on that album. So that's how I got into her. That's amazing. I never heard that story before, but in the course of my research, I found out that she did grow up listening to Neil Diamond, so that must have been an amazing moment for her. Yeah. I was in college at the time, so I wasn't listening to that much music, but an older sister, and she got me the album, and that's what started it. Fast car. Yep, exactly. So I asked my dad where, where my parents got it, and I was hoping for some dramatic story, but they were like, oh, there were just like a lot of interviews with her all over the place, and the album was really critically acclaimed, so... Seems like what it probably was for a lot of people. Did anyone actually see this performance when it aired? It was from June 1988. It was the Nelson Mandela, like the free Nelson Mandela 70th birthday concert. So that was her first big televised performance. Basically everybody who's anybody in the music scene was a guest at this thing. And everyone got to play like two songs, but there was this big kerfuffle where like Stevie Wonder's equipment went missing or something. And so he wasn't able to do his second set as planned and he like stormed off enough. And then people were scrambling for somebody to fill that spot. And so Tracy was there. And so her first set she played across the lines behind the wall. I think she opened with behind a wall, which is pretty intense for someone who's never heard that before. And then possibly I think For My Lover was next. And then it was in that second set that she played Fast Car, which was everyone's introduction to that song and the rest of its history. Anyone else? Well, I was a mother at the time, and I just thought I liked the words, I liked the tempo, and her stories in the songs meant something. I always listened to alternative radio, and that's how I first encountered it. And my kids were little, and we all used to sing this. I had a, a tape recorder in the car, cassette. I bought the cassette, and we all used to sing it. My kids were eight and nine or something, and we all sang this music. And then in 1989, I went to a concert at the Garden State. Oh, wow. And I still have that T-shirt. That's amazing. He has full holes. I was going to put it tonight, and then Aww. I forgot. But it's, uh, it's been all those years, since 1989, I own it. <laughs> Your original gangster. You showed these clips earlier, Rupa, and obviously you've got the dissonance, right, of Robert Palmer, as you noted, some sort of subpar George Michael <laughs> that was topping the charts, and then, and wonderfully, the, the great Michael Douglas moment in Wall Street. But when she's singing, talking about a revolution, it's kind of a dream, isn't it? Because if you think about that period, who was clamoring for a revolution? That's the fascinating thing. So she actually wrote that song when she was 16. So I think she was born in 64, so in 1980. So there's that's like one of the themes in this album that there's a lot of people in dire straits that she's talking about, but there is this undercurrent of hope and optimism. And it makes you want to go find her and shake her and be like, 1980s Tracy, like, what did you see that we didn't that made you think <laughs> that there was any reason for hope whatsoever? But clearly there is something that's there. And yeah, at times it does sound naive, but it's kind of difficult not to be intoxicated and want to believe her. Right. And it's almost kind of, it's out of place. Because, as colleagues said, there were hair bands everywhere. There was this kind of, Mike Farragher mentioned, in excess. There was excess mm -hmm. in the 80s. There was lots of excess. Yeah, and that's there why excess to... shoulder pads, right? <laughs> I mean, there was, everything was a little, to quote Michael Shaben with his 1980s era novel, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, everything was a little too, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why I used the image from the movie American Psycho, which is obviously not from the 80s, but about the ridiculous excess of the 80s and the worst of everything. So I thought that was Fitting. But yeah, like seeing like that George Michael song, you see that there's this growing, well, hopefully there is a growing dissatisfaction with stuff like that, which makes people so open to hearing Tracy in a very different POV. But also, I mean, just the existence of concerts like the Free Mandela one, and then early in the 80s, you get like Live Aid and stuff like that. So it does show this like growing political awareness in music. I was just going to say the one thing that we haven't addressed in the zeitgeist and the social landscape, the AIDS crisis mm -hmm. and the beginning of a revolution within the gay community. So she doesn't ever really address that specifically in the album, but I do think that that was there. That's the rumblings and the foundation of one of the biggest revolutions that we've had in, in our society. And I, I think one of the things that's so powerful about the messages and the, the sociopolitical stuff that goes on in her album but then with the song like Fast Car and me being a teenager when I first started listening to her, she captures like an angst and a longing that's just like absolutely universal. Like you don't need to be a poor cashier taking care of your alcoholic dad. You're just a friggin' 15 year old that wants to like get in the car and run away and like be somewhere else. And I think that that kind of like streams through a lot of her more overtly like political songs. 
There's a great quote about that exactly, like the feeling of fast card that makes it so special. I'm gonna fish for that because I think you'll appreciate it. But yeah, that's such a great connection to make that this is, it does seem like this sort of like really hedonistic, materialistic time period, but it is, there's rumblings of change and the AIDS crisis being a huge factor there. And it's interesting because there's a lot of talk around people finding Tracy to be this like sort of queer touch point because I mean, she's never really overt in terms of like the gender of who she's singing to and talking about. And also just like her androgyny, like she was the first person I ever saw where I was like, is that a man or a woman? The name didn't help obviously, nor does her voice. So yeah, I think that was like kind of eye-opening for a lot of people. Hey, Jack? <clears throat> I'm just curious, was she talking about revolution in this country or in Africa? No, here. I mean, she's, her experiences are, a lot of them are pretty centered in her upbringing in Cleveland. The first thing she wrote was called Cleveland 78. So I think it's her direct experience that she's talking about mostly. Although obviously apartheid, divestment, all that stuff was a huge thing on people's minds then, especially college campuses. Like she was at Tufts in the 80s. That's where she got her um, start as a performer. But I think some of the first shows that she played were like anti-apartheid shows and she got a reputation as a protest singer. And so, yeah, even if it's not something that she sings about directly, it's it was definitely a touch point for people who appreciated her music and also felt strong about those issues. Yeah, so just like m building off of those discussion, I was thinking about, it's so interesting to me that she wrote that song in 1980, but then it came out in 1988. 88, yeah. Right, because we're just like at the height of neoliberalism, cutting of social services, it's just sort of like the beginning of late capitalism really exploding all over itself, that like those cultural references, the film clips and the songs that you shared really illustrate. And just in terms of like, is it naive what she's doing? Is it, I don't know, I had a couple thoughts. One, when you were asking like how we got into Tracy Chapman, it was through my parents' music, but most of what my parents were fans of was like, classic rock and 60s, 70s, stuff like that. And so I always assumed growing up that she was of that era, <laughs> largely just because that was like their genre, but also I think partially tapping into some of that content, like sort of where she's coming from. But I think in terms of it's like, yeah, being naive or how that song in particular, talking about a revolution functions, I think she's calling out in really clear and specific ways some of the impacts of neoliberal policies like unemployment, again, cutting of social service, right? All of these just increasing in poverty at the same time that these gross increases in sort of wealth are taking place. And I feel like she's doing some sort of prefigurative kind of politics, like calling in a threat or a warning almost to like ruling class, owning class, being like, this is what, like it feels almost like biblical or like <laughs> prophetic or something like that. She's like, this is what's happening. This is what you're doing. This is what you're creating, but like watch out like this, like the chickens are gonna come home to roost or something <laughs> of it. Like this is unsustainable. You know, I feel like she's sort of calling that in or almost like in a directly confrontational way. Yeah. That's a fascinating point, Liza, because it's so interesting because I mean, it's very easy to see race being like a huge topic that she comes back to again and again in her work, especially this album. But more so than that, it's just poverty and the people who are being affected by, you know, unemployment and all that stuff. It's not just poor white people, or it's not just poor black people, also poor white people. That's an interesting point too, in the sense that you talked about this sort of cutting of services or even the change of the way services were meted out at that time, right? Where folks who without question needed to be on welfare and needed public assistance, were forced to go through all sorts of machinations to, to be able to even receive those funds. And it sort of, you said it prefigures a lot of things that happen later. It prefigures Michael Moore films, right? In a sense, this kind of, this social malaise. I find it interesting that she's saying, talk about a revolution in a whisper and actually whispering it. Well, not in a whisper, but it starts with a whisper. It starts with a whisper, yeah. but it's, it's actually part of the mood of it. It's not a screaming revolution. Yeah, and it's, there's it's, a murmur there. Yeah, it's like a whisper. It's almost Sami's dot, right? Like there's this secret whisper occurring. So when, Rupa, will the revolution come? <laughs> not soon enough. Yesterday, <laughs> ideally. Oh. But that's a good uh, connection to what I was going to say about a critical reception of her album. Obviously, it was huge. Went like top number six pop hit on the billboard, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff. It was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. And this quote, I felt, really connects with what we were saying about her being sort of touch point for coming change and coming uh, political awareness. So this one is from V. H1, if anyone remembers what that is. <laughs> Her album helped usher in an era of political correctness, along with, and clearly this is an article that was written some time ago, because any time that you would say political correctness now, there'd be some sort of caveat around that term. 
So along with 10,000 maniacs and REM, Chapman's liberal politics proved enormously influential on American college campuses in the late 80s. So a, a funny thing is she was nominated for three, no, nominated for six Grammys. She won three, so new artist, female pop vocal for a fast car, contemporary folk album. She did not win Song of the Year. Can anyone guess what won for Song of the Year instead, 1989? So apologies to everyone who thought that they would never have to hear this again, but. <laughs> but here it comes. <laughs> I, have MTV in the 80s, so this is all very illuminating to me. So, I mean, it's a delightful song, but the fact that people took it like seriously enough to make it like best song of the year, that's pretty astounding. Um, but again, if we compare it to the video for Fast Car. Poll, do people want to watch the entire video for Fast Car or would that be a waste of time? Who wants to watch it? Okay, cool. Right, so I found the quote about the song that I was going to read earlier. So this is from an extremely conveniently timed Pitchfork review. So I don't know what you would call it, like the website magazine about music uh, called Pitchfork. They've been doing this thing where every Sunday they'll dig back into like some classic album and review it. And so they did this literally like two weeks ago for this album, which was a fantastic source of material. I swear. See, I mean, everyone gets their cues from you, Ken. <laughs> I swear I didn't just like plagiarize everything I'm saying tonight verbatim from them. But this line about Fast Car was great. The low verses mix bleak recognition with quiet hope before building to a chorus so wistful, so joyfully tender, it can transport you a time in your life when you were younger and maybe a little less scared. I think that sums it up pretty well. But beyond the critical re reception, the stuff that I love is this tweet. If you like do a search on Twitter for fast car and the word better, you will find like hundreds and hundreds of tweets to this effect just saying that really it doesn't get much better than that. And so after that, a Pitchfork review came out, someone posted this, which perfectly ties together some of the stuff that we were talking about before, about the sort of poverty, which is the, the broad brush with which most of our stuff is painted. So this was somebody posting, the, the person who wrote the Pitchfork Sunday review, somebody responded saying, Fast Car is one of my favorite songs ever, and I think it's a slowly diminishing hope after every naive assertion that things will get better that makes the song so profound and incredibly sad. I don't know a better song that captures how poverty limits your dreams. Another great thing that I read, not just about Fast Car, but the album in general, is how while there is this vulnerability in our best songs, one doesn't see fragility, per se, just forthright dignity. And what really interests me is like the couple like real exceptions, not really exceptions, but sort of counterpoints to that. Because most of the songs, they have this protagonist who is trying to do the right thing. So in Fast Car, the person realizes that even though this person that she's singing the song about has all these things that she hopes they want to offer, and that at the end of the day, they do not. And so she tells them to hit the road, essentially. But then you have these other songs, namely For My Lover and For You, where she's really kind of desperate and she shows this vulnerability. And that's what makes those songs really great to me. So she grew up in Cleveland, a single mom. After her parents divorced, her mom refused to accept al any alimony. So, I mean, they weren't desperate, but she said it was like a pretty bare bones existence. But she's clearly very bright. She got a scholarship to some like private prep school in Connecticut for high school. So that was how she got like acquainted with that area. And she had a lot of support there. So I think she, she started playing ukulele at like six and then I get, got a cheap guitar when she was eight and probably played that same guitar for the next 10 years until when she was in high school, like the chaplain did like a charity fundraiser to buy her, like buy Tracy a new guitar basically. So that was how she got her start and that's how she came to occupy like this world and this sort of like educational support that let her busk and, and do stuff like really that. She bridges both worlds, mm -hmm. poverty and well-to-do. Yeah, and it's very interesting because 
surprisingly for an African-American female folk singer, her audience is predominantly white. And so one of the interviews I read, there's this comment from Chuck D from Public Enemy saying that you could beat black people with Tracy Chapman's music like 35,000 times over the head and they still won't appreciate it or like won't get it or something like that, which is fascinating to me. I wish we had had some African-American fans of Tracy in the audience tonight to like share what their experiences have been with her because it's something that you don't notice at first. But yeah, she does have an extremely middle-class white. I have to say like first song I love so much, it's one that I just do not want to ever, ever hear a cover of because it's just so perfect in its original form that I just don't think it can be approved upon. I think that one of the things about the racial profiling is that there is a hope and a hopelessness in her songs. Mm -hmm. And having grown up in that, and before as a mother, growing up in more of a poor poverty situation, fast cars, my first boyfriend and I bought a car for $50 and taped up the, I always leaked some fluid, so we always had to stop and tie this up, but that song resonated with, we can change. Mm -hmm. And I think that possibly because of white privilege, the hope was much more prevalent in all of her songs oh, for well. me. It touched my background, mm -hmm. but that hope was there. And I'm wondering if that's not part of why she didn't resonate with a lot of poor black communities. I don't know if that hope in the 80s was as prevalent or even looking back to the late 60s and 70s, whether or not that could be uh, part of it. That is an amazing observation. I cannot possibly add to that. Thank you. Is there also, just to, to pick up on your point, I mean, the 80s are interesting in that they almost privilege themselves, right? We're the 80s. We've really got it going on here. Greed <laughs> is good, as Rupa demonstrated with the Wall Street clip earlier. And we could, you could find dozens of other films, right, that are sort of talking about their greatness and how in some way they've got it all figured out. So in a weird way, was the 80s a forward-thinking period, I wonder? I mean, it was simply irresistible. I don't think greed is the way to go, but I definitely think it foreshadowed what we are in. Sure, and you have, going back to, to the Wall Street example again, which is so paradigmatic, right? You've got a guy saying, greed is good, live for now, make your killing right now. It's the bonfire of the vanities, to use another, the Tom Wolfe novel that was so extraordinarily huge at the time. And it's not a forward-thinking kind of attitude, right? I mean, you had President Reagan talking about how we'll be the shining city on the hill again and, and all that sort of political rhetoric. But when you look at what's happening, people aren't really living in that way. You know, in fact, the line that she repeats is, I'll find a place to be someone. That's a forward-thinking, but maybe not transactional thing that will actually happen. I think also that this is, I'm not sure exactly when it started, but the philosophy or the religion of prosperity, theology that if you're really good, greed's going to come your way and you're going to get positive feedback from that. So, And I do think... And that's I mean, trans-historical in the United States, right? I mean, that goes back <laughs> centuries. <laughs> I think so, but it was more pronounced when you had Jim Baker and a few other people sure. on the television. And Tammy Faye. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and she addresses that so explicitly in a song like Mountains of Things, which is purely about materialism and all the stuff you can't take it with you. I think something that resonates within her songs besides the poverty when you look back at the 80s, it was really only good for Wall Street white men. There was that big boom. I mean, you also had 9 to 5, which came out during the 80s, and that was women trying to make it. And that resonated with a lot of people. And I think 9 to 5 was one of the big songs that came out from Dolly Parton. <laughs> That's right. And remember, what's the punchline of that movie? What do they have to do? Isn't their boss Dabney Coleman? What do they have to do with Dabney Coleman to make that work? I was just going to bring up one thing about you mentioned Wall Street with Michael Douglas. I haven't seen the movie, but I don't think that scene, that quote, like, I don't think we're necessarily supposed to see that character as, like, a hero. Ah, yes, this is my role model to look up to. I think he's supposed to be sort of an omen of bad things, kind of Machiavellian. I know when The Wolf of Wall Street came out. I was going to mention that too, yeah. A lot of people saw that movie and they were like, oh, yeah, this guy, this guy's got it figured out. This is what we're supposed to take away from this movie. The point of that movie was that he had it all figured out and he was someone to look up to. I think maybe, in fact, it was the opposite. Well, not to go completely down another tangent, but of course, I mean, he's not like the protagonist, but it's like when you watch a movie like The Godfather, it's like, yeah, obviously Michael Corleone is a criminal. He leads to the deaths of so many people, but he's still the one you're rooting for. 
mostly. So, but there is some ambiguity too, right? I mean, he's which is a good character, right? He's he's put in parallel display with the is the Martin Sheen character, right? Who's this kind of past-looking person who gets destroyed when his company gets chopped up by... Spoiler alert. <laughs> right, spoiler alert. Yeah, but still watch it anyway. And while some people go to jail in the movie, if you go back to the 80s, there were people who would very much have heard that and said, yeah, greed is good. I get that. But he did this that was wrong, right? Don't do that. Yeah. There's, there were all these kind of hypothetical ifs. He just went too far. You can make a killing. If you don't make that one fatal flaw. If you don't yeah, that's right. Too don't, much don't, don't let Charlie Sheen cord you. Another spoiler alert. I haven't actually seen it, so I'm like, I'm just not uh-huh. sure. Well, uh, we'll have a special screening in the future of Wall Street, because apparently not enough people have seen it. I don't know dates on this, but there seemed to be like a little spurt where there was like a commodification of like, like I'm thinking of like Bruce Hornsby's That's Just the Way It Is and like Phil Collins did that cheesy song about like the poor woman who didn't have shoes on and like, yeah, oh God, I hate that song. (laughs) Um, And then, but again, they were commenting, they weren't the protagonist but I think it's also not a coincidence, you know, this is like when born in the USA and you've got Mellencamp doing like Scarecrow, like there was a lot of this kind of commentary going on there was definitely a backlash but there was just something that felt so genuine about Tracy but again in a way maybe it felt genuine as a white girl because she seemed to be well there's the woman part of it for sure the voice of her as a woman is like a marginalized person you think it's so interesting that white people related more in the bigger part of the audience that maybe there was some sort of genuine and just the way she delivers it obviously there's a genuineness there that wasn't in so many of these other songs that were seemingly trying to touch on these same themes they were more outside looking in I guess it felt like yeah I mean she was very much an outsider artist like all these articles describe her as sort of like being formed completely outside of and sort of in opposition to like the mainstream music of the time I mean, you could sort of tell, even based on the music video that we saw, she never once looked into the camera. And I think it was, what, VH1 that her the first, it went to the Don't Worry song. Was that VH1? Oh, yeah, Don't don't Worry. Yeah, I mean, you could sort of see why that other song won. The guy was playing up to the camera and pandering to the people that were watching. And VH1 is mostly music videos. There's nothing that automatically draws your eye. It's all about what you hear. Speaking of her never looking at the camera. I knew that she had been singing like in little places in Boston and and she seemed to be like in a very, even at the art center, which is not huge, but it's a venue. She was like very drawn and into her own space. Like if we had been 20 people there, that was enough. She never really came out like a performer that was just bombastic or anything like that. Yeah, and I, I read that she she was so uncommunicative or incommunicative with her audience that people would yell like, talk to us, talk to us, because she would just do one song after another, no banter, nothing like that. And she addresses it in interviews that like, there just didn't seem to be like anything I could say to like a crowd that big that wouldn't be just like completely superficial. So it's really kind of incredible her. Uh, singing to herself, yeah. you know, like I did this music and I need to deliver it, but mm-hmm. it's just I'm singing myself or a small audience. And she did a lot of busking like on the streets of Boston and I think like having that sort of audience you either have to engage them all the time or just like really condemn yourself to like the possible (laughs) rejection of people just like walking past you and not paying attention. So I would speculate that that sort of made her not care too much about like trying to engage but just making her music in the most honest way possible and hoping that people connect to it. Doesn't that make her in kind of in the sense that you're describing in terms of her performing in that fashion? Doesn't that make her kind of like Dylan? I'm I'm not the first person to ever make this this comparison because, of course, that's what people were saying in 1988. Well, we can't talk about Dylan too much because Michael will be heartbroken. My my husband is a huge Dylan fan, so... Liza? Yeah, so I was thinking about Fast Car, um, back to that a little bit. Like, I'd actually never thought about this until tonight, which is probably the purpose of this. First, specifically engaging the symbol of the car in American rock and roll and how that American music, American popular music, how the car has been such a symbol of like individualism and freedom and youth and progress, cutting loose, like getting to sort of like break free from tradition and make your own way in the world. Like, 
et cetera. It's just, it's ubiquitous, right? Like the car in, in American pop music and her- Born to run. Right, yeah. And like her take on it is so different because she's sort of at the end of a movie or a romantic comedy or something where it's just like, oh, the couple gets together and that's like the end of the movie. She's like taking us way past that or it's like yeah they do these like lovers do have a car and they escape kind of their situation but then we keep going with them and we see the way that like their hope in the american dream she's specifically like engaging with the american dream you'll get work i'll get promoted we'll get a bigger house we'll move just like everything that is sold to americans like just if you just work hard enough all that stuff is waiting for you so she's like specifically engaging it but then taking us all the way to the end of it and there's systemic oppression and self-medication addiction that comes as a result of like trying to survive within systems that aren't fair or human or egalitarian so she's like i don't know i just feel like it's so smart in some ways the way that she's using all of those symbols to really challenge yeah because the the qualifier for the car is that it's a fast one but inevitably (laughs) what you realize is that just the fact that the car is going fast doesn't mean that it's actually going anywhere and is there a fast enough car, right? I mean, indeed, there is not, Ken. Yeah, to, no, but to to go to the place that we all dream about, and really, even to pick on Bruce for a moment, right? To step out over the line, it's a dream in a way. Perhaps like fast car. Perhaps that's almost why it did not resonate with Black Americans because that may not have been an actuality. A lot of people were taking public transit. If they had a car, they were sharing it with dozens of people. Maybe that's why it never resonated so much with Black Americans. Mm-hmm. I was going to share, when we were talking about her her image and her disinclination to be photographed and all that, so in this issue of Rolling Stone, the pictures are amazing. No eye contact whatsoever. Is there something to be said about her compositions, too? You really set this up so very well by showing not just the the filmic scene, but also the songs that were hits at the Mm. time, right? And I don't want to hear those songs anymore. But the the reason I say that is, is in a way, isn't she taking a kind of a page out of a classic songbook in a way? She's writing songs that aren't stuck in 1988. I think about, forgive me, the Beatles and Eleanor Rigby, which is another song that's critical of its moment. It's critical of organized religion. And, uh, and it doesn't have a happy ending. The last three words, four words, no one was saved, right? No one's saved in this song either. Part of what makes it even more powerful with the way you, you set up the juxtapositions is that song doesn't exist in 1988. Mm-hmm. So a listener could discover this song and probably did today. And it has nothing to do with that period. It, it almost exists outside of time. All right, I have like three thoughts I will save them, please. So the thing that, that I'm thinking about is what, what was going on, and maybe you could look at what was going on in, in the R&B charts issue of Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. but what I think about of what was popular was rap was coming on, and so Public Enemy was not interested in starting with a whisper. They were, they yeah. were you know, loud and proud and Excellently said. And, and NWA, and, and yeah. that, was, that was all happening in 1988 also, mm-hmm. and so, you know, the preaching to people who were not interested in whispers. Yeah, excellent point. Mm-hmm. Just to acknowledge my wife's profession as a radio DJ, I hadn't heard Fast Car in a long time, and I heard it on the radio, and it was next to an Ed Sheeran song, and it was the one We Found Love, the slow one that's kind of soulful. And you, when you think about it, she has a deep voice for a woman, and he has a teenage <laughs> voice for a man. Just think about this for a second. If Ed Sheeran covered this album, it would be perfect. <laughs> Because, and I mean that as a compliment to the, there's, I hope we get to the other songs on this album because it's not just one, but Mountains of Things and and some other songs that are on here, Baby Will I Hold You, which sounds very soulful compared to some of the Ed Sheeran stuff. So I think to me it was, uh, hey, I'd love to hear Ed Sheeran sing these songs and I'd love, I'd love for Tracy Chapman to cover some Ed Sheeran if that would ever happen. (laughs) But it also speaks to just how timeless she is and this album is. It, It really struck me. Um, so that connects to the stuff I was going to say, so thank you. Yeah, well, that's one of the amazing things about the album is how timeless it is. They're just like a couple like guitar and like hand drum things here and there that give it away as being part of the 80s, but on the whole, especially the first couple songs that are just very acoustic in nature, they could have come from any time. And if you listen to these earlier interviews that she did where she like played some of her music like in the early 80s, some of the songs, they just are identical to what they're like on the album. Just produced a little better, but they were, they were perfect from the inception. When I listen to the words talking about a revolution, Mm. again, and then she goes into the whisper, what I thought about was she's whispering because we should have done this already. (laughs) This happened already. This was supposed to be the 60s. 
That was the revolution. It was the war, it was race relations, and could we maybe get this right? Is there it's a tough. possibility? There's a lot of disenchantment that you can hear, the, hear there, too. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think the moment on the album that you suddenly realize that you're in the 80s is on uh, Baby Can I Hold You. There's this like doo-doo-doo, this little like guitar thing that's just like super 80s. So one of the things I found was uh, actually her first radio interview ever. So this is 85 November, three years before her album comes out, and she's just like playing, playing acoustic guitar in a studio. And so you get to see these, or hear these like stripped down versions of her songs. And most of them are, as I said, they don't change much on the album, but this version of Baby Can I Hold You is really nice. Uh, this song is called uh, Baby Can I Hold You, and uh, I ended up, you were asking me what kind of things I, I did at Tufts, and one of the things that I did is I played in the talent shows that they had there, and the first year that I played, I played this song, and I won the show, too. What other songs should we talk about on this album? Mountains of Things. Mountains of Things. The stage is yours. I just, I don't know what it, no matter when I hear it, I could be at the gym, I could be driving, I, I love it. I don't know if it, there's a reggae thing to it or... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just... Very distinctly yeah. reggae. And I identify with it and it has nothing to do with how I grew up, <laughs> so... I just think it's a great song. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I don't know what I have to add to that. It's, it's a great song. It's It's got this quality to it that other songs on the album don't have, both musically and also just in terms of tone. But yeah, it's, it definitely adds to the richness of the album and specifically situates it in the 80s, both in terms of the, the musical qualities. It has that like bouncing reggae beat, but it's also critiquing exactly the things that make the 80s the 80s. Other thoughts? Other songs we should talk about? I don't want to reveal my favorites. I don't want to influence though too much more of the way the conversation goes. Ken, what are your other favorites on the album? Oh, wow, I'm on the spot. Yes. I like how the album closes. For me, great records, whether they're made today or in the era of Tracy Chapman or, or the 60s or what have you, if we're going to talk about them, they sequence well, right? They end well. I was on a podcast last night talking about, of all things, the 1973 Ringo album, which was such a landmark for Ringo. <laughs> um, <laughs> not surprisingly, and it ends so very, very well. How do you feel about how the Tracy Chapman, we know it begins well because we have the whispers about a revolution. How well does this album end is in terms of sequencing? And of course, in 1988, it predominantly sold probably first, Joe Rapola could correct me on this, but as a cassette, perhaps, although the CD revolution was, was in and on. They would have been very close even still in 88, right? There was definitely both formats, but yeah, sure. I think the yeah. CD was in full swing then. Yeah, yeah, CDs so, were 82, but but a lot of people were still hanging on to those portable cassette players, right? The walk, the Walkman so, was still uh, there with the Discman. In this issue of Rolling Stone, there's an article about how, what effect CDs are going to have on bootlegging culture, which is actually quite interesting. But there's also a great story, another one about her shunning fame and all that stuff. So. She's like walking around uh, Boston with the interviewer. And of course, everywhere she goes, she gets recognized. She hates it, et cetera, et cetera. But they go into a restaurant and they're playing whatever they're playing over the PA. And as soon as she sits down, they put on her album and she's just like, oh. And she looks over and she can tell just by looking at the tape that it's not even like an official copy of her album. It's <laughs> one that someone has copied. So another one of those things that situates it in the 80s and tapes and all that stuff. So they, she, she had her manager say something and they turned off that album and like put on some Streisand or something. So yeah. Mm -hmm. There was Suzanne Vega's Luca, which mm -hmm. was a massive, massive hit. Could you tell us more about that? I, I know about it a little bit. I'm sure that people yeah, don't know. I mean, know some it. of the lyrics on it are, I walked into the door again. I live on the second floor. I walked into the door again. I don't remember the exact lyrics, but there was a lot of, she only hit until you cry or something like that. Mm -hmm. That's one of the, the lyrics on it. So I think that was, I just remember that at the time being released, that nobody had ever written something like that yeah. before. So. That's such a um, good commentary, too, because that album, Solitude Standing, like this one, existed almost outside of everything else that was happening. And it also, too, has an acapella song, although one not as trenchant as Rupert described, but in the song about the diner. But still, very similar in terms of intent and standing outside of the, or existing outside of that period. 
I find myself getting a little defensive about the 80s here or something <laughs> because I, I do think if you probably have the chart position in that rolling in that particular Rolling Stone. It'll be interesting to see what exactly is on that charting. But again, I think that that was it was a time that Tracy Chapman could sell six million albums, and Suzanne Vega also steeped in folk and very much very much social commentary kind of folk at that existed right alongside yeah, Robert Palmer and George Michael. So I you know I do think that people my age would often say about today's music that it's not the same as it once was. <laughs> you know, again, you have a One Republic and you've got Taylor Swift can sit next to Cardi B. So I, I, th I do think that the 80s wasn't just about white man and greed <laughs> and all that stuff. For people that were actually there, they'll, they'll know that. I do think that there was a real tolerance for a lot of different styles of music because then you also had Peter Gabriel and Yusu Endure. So I, I do think that there was, a, there was quite a lot of interesting things going on, not just the cartoonish <laughs> stuff you hear with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. yeah, it, sure it hadn't all been dispensed with for, uh, people hadn't given up on craft. I definitely cringe, don't get me wrong. There's <laughs> definitely things I cringe about in the 80s, but it was also, I think that Suzanne Vega and certainly Tracy Chapman were indicative of different flavors you could find on the pop chart. Do, do you have that pop chart in the back? Yeah. What do we want to hear, US singles, top 50 albums? How about the albums? Uh, well, she was number one. Steve Winwood, Guns N' Roses, Def Leppard, Huey Lewis and the News, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Van Halen, Robert Palmer, George Michael, Terrence Trent Darby. It's the first top ten. Okay, for anybody that doesn't know Terrence Trent Darby, complete throwback Motown. You've got metal, mm -hmm. DJ Jazzy Jeff. It was cartoonish hip-hop. It was hip-hop nonetheless. So I, I, I think that's an example of where so a Van Halen can is behind Tracy Chapman, yeah. which, you know, it's, it's pretty surprising. It's a pretty astoundingly varied list, if you think about the, all the genres presented and there. And cheesy, for sure. as well, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, just the fact that she could do so well shows that there was clearly this clamoring for, for something else. And just because, you know, George Michael was doing really well doesn't mean that that's all that was going on or all that people had a thirst for. I'd like to pick up, though, on that thought earlier. So do you think For You ends the album very well? Oh, um... I mean, I think it's just such a stunner of a song that you can't possibly follow it up with every, anything. So in that sense, yeah, I think it's a perfect closing. Can, can we hear it? Yeah, for sure. something you gotta follow up well it, it was i actually requested it because i was i mean i played the song over and over but it's been a long time since i played this album so i just mm -hmm. wanted to get present to what it was i think for me it, it when she t talks about talking about a revolution and it sounds like a whisper and then she almost ends this ends the album with an, a whisper yeah. and it's just a, a beautiful gentle song i think when you look at you know like a mountains of things where again, it's it's definitely talking about the dangers of capitalism for my lover, about the lover being in a Virginia jail. Mm -hmm. So I think there's there's definitely some very weighty social commentary here, and I think this is just this settles you back down. I think it's a very strong song for sure. Yeah, she sure uses again. I would silence. love to hear Ed Sheeran sing it. <laughs> <laughs> she sure uses silence well, right? I mean, it's the way it, all throughout the album. Yeah, even in songs that have more tempo and more volume to them. She uses silence really well. Look at the, the way she said intellect and reason mm -hmm. and just sort of left a pregnant pause afterwards. So that's one of the things I love about the song that like every other song or most of the other songs like there's this strength and self-assurance and this one she can see how undone she is by this person but like she's very aware of it and something about that is fascinating to me. But just about the quality of the music. You can see this on other songs like For My Lover as well. That there are so many parts where it's just her voice, like there's no guitar, nothing else. So I've been trying to like learn to play some of them and they're very intimidating for that reason because it's just your naked voice for a lot and not many people can pull that off. Mm -hmm. No, I was wondering, what can you tell us about Tracy Chapman now? I was kind of shocked when my friend said, they said you know, a conversation about Tracy Chapman and her music. I haven't heard from her a long time. So I was very excited to come here. And then I started reading a little bit yesterday on Google, of course. <laughs> so, you know, what's going on now? I mean, a 
a very good question. Um, like on their ground? <laughs> I mean, I think she's still, I mean, she's released plenty of albums since this first one. I have to say, I don't think I know any of her songs other than Give Me One Reason after this album, which is shameful and I feel like a terrible fan, but this is just such a perfect album that I was like, I'm good, don't need anything else. But as we as we wrap up, I'll, I'll play uh, something off her greatest hits album that I think you'll love. Mm -hmm. Jack? I don't know much about Tracy Chapman and I'm listening to this album more than I would have normally li listened to it. And I have a tendency to listen to music and sound more than lyrics, so I'm paying attention to the sound. And then you've given me a little information about her demeanor, her behavior. Mm -hmm. And I'm depressed. <laughs> and I'm feeling that this is a depressing album. And I'm feeling that she's a depressing person. I don't know anything about her, but that's the impression I'm getting. And you ever have a friend who's depressing and you don't want to be around that friend? I don't want to hear this out because I don't want to be depressed. And I wonder if that's something that's happened in this. So anyone else want to respond to that, Liza? I have to, I don't know, I, yeah, whatever, whatever your personal experience and relationship to the sound or the music, but I feel like as other people have been talking about throughout this evening, this is, there's so much hope in this album, and I think beyond just like a trite idea of hope, because what does hope really mean? Anyways, like she's actively carving out a space for herself, like Rupa was saying, sort of in opposition to not just like the force of popular music, but also the forces of racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, right? She's like, she is world making, you know? And like, it is, it feels so active and just that in and of itself, like going, taking up space, claiming space in the midst of all of those, yeah, forces of oppression or just like cultural forces, that to me feels deeply strong and hopeful and beautiful. And I think that, and powerful. And I think that that last song, it is, it's just like such a stunner. And I think that it, is a way to end it perfectly because she starts with this talking about a revolution and actually that song to me is revolutionary she's it's a queer love song and it's like that is profoundly revolutionary in popular music in some ways and just the like yeah vulnerability of it too it doesn't have like all the bombastic over self-confidence that is like embodied in, in what we're talking about, 1980s cultural production. So yeah, I guess like my experience of it is far from depressing, but respect to your experience. If, if I had a dime for every egg I cracked listening to this album, Making Brunch, I mean, this is a brunch album. You know, it's like a, it's like a Sunday, Sunday quiet, morning. pensive totally. album. It's not a party album. For that, you would definitely go to George Michael's Monkey on My Back. <laughs> Obviously, but no, I, I, I could definitely, I don't know if I go as far as depressing, and again, to your point, it's all in the eye or the ear of the beholder, but I definitely think this is a pensive album. This is definitely the lyrical, the lyrics make you think, but I think just the, the melodies and, the, and they're subdued, and I, I would agree that this isn't a happy album, but it's also a, like an introspective album that I've played often on a Sunday, for sure. And I'm, I mean, this is true of any album, but for this album in particular, with me and people of my generation, it's, you know, I grew up with it, and so I can understand, like, coming into it, coming to it for the first time, like, you're only going to see the, the face value of it and not the feeling of the time that it was discovered and all that. Yeah, people like sad music sometimes. There's a time and place for that. <laughs> we have time for another comment before we, we wrap things up. Okay, so I was going to say it's kind of interesting because like, I think people listen to music for different reasons and kind of respond emotionally to different things. Like, I mean, sometimes you're, you're sad or like sometimes life is kind of rough and like you want to listen to music to get your mind off it or cheer yourself up and... Sometimes, sometimes I've noticed, like, even for me, occasionally listening to, like, very beautiful music can make me feel kind of bad, can make me feel a little, like, depressed. So there's definitely an element of, like, time and place, but and maybe depending on who you are and, like, your current mood, but I think there's also a sense of being sad and listening to sad music and getting a kind of like catharsis out of it and sort of like people ask you how you're doing and they don't expect a real answer they expect you to say oh i'm doing great i'm doing fine and so usually 
in day-to-day -day life, it's just kind of everything is sort of painted as like happy right, going Right, so I think or, what you're touching on is that like this album dispenses of any of that superficiality as Tracy herself does so often. Well, sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's gratifying to like have someone kind of come out and show you those heavy things, those like depressing things, and just bring it up instead of everybody's just not talking about it. I mean, the, it, yeah, that is like, kind of the point of art. If we only had happy art, then everyone feeling all that sad, darker stuff most of the time would feel very lonely. Right. Like I said, cathartic. Feel like you're alone with it anymore. You have someone to relate to, and oh, hey, you're saying what I'm thinking, like. Sure, and it, it's so contextualized, right? I mean, it's consistent on, it's contingent of, on us. It's reader response theory, right? So yeah. we make meaning, and sometimes we're not connected with the text. As you said, it's so mood-driven, it's so highly personalized, and music like reading is, is very much like that. Sorry to keep you waiting. Last question. That's okay. You were uh, talking before about her self-awareness, mm -hmm. and so I was thinking of this as almost a therapy for herself and her listeners. I would agree. Definitely feels like that. Strong voice like that. It's basic folk opera. You can transcend whatever you want to the listener. And that's her gift. So that's what she has to protect. She can be a massive guitar player. So if you're not white, uh, Joni Mitchell or Joan Baez, doesn't matter when you have that, you can do anything. So once again, you, when you listen to opera, do you hear you know, suffering, you hear joy, you, the basic emotion of every human connection. Yeah, and as a female folk singer, she had much more control over her music and the production of it than most female musicians did. So it like, gives her that space to be vulnerable, which is, I think, a really interesting way to end the album. And our evening. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thanks for talking about folk opera with us tonight. <laughs> and, and thank you for your patience earlier. And especially thanks to Rupa. My pleasure. For her, for her magnificent me. work and her preparation in, in getting us here tonight. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. And I mentioned earlier what a, what a gifted artist she is. And I frequently visit her website. And for the octopus a day, as a lover of the octopi, you can really see how she interprets just sea life in beautiful ways and, and different ways every day. So I, I recommend you check that out. Uh, you will not be sorry. This is Rupa Dasgupta. If you look up octopusaday.com. An octopus a day, yes. All right, so I, I mentioned uh, something that she did more recently. This is her cover of Stand By Me, which is, I think, a great way to end the evening. I'm so excited. She's here. Yeah, when uh, Harry was a little boy, uh, there was two songs. I knew two songs, and I loved them, and I found them both uh, certainly meaningful to me. One was uh, Simon and Garfunkel's America, oh, yeah. because uh, when I was a kid in high school, I memorized it. It was a good song to memorize. And the other one, Benny King, Stand By ah. Me. And uh, to hear uh, Tracy Chapman sing that song is heaven. Here ah. she is, ladies and gentlemen, multiple Grammy Award winner. We're delighted that she's here tonight to perform this classic, Tracy Chapman. Well, thanks again, Rupa, for a really great evening and in spectacular form, no less. Thank you so much. And I was very rude. I was thanked, but I did not thank all of you for coming and contributing and for all your memories and observations and all that stuff we couldn't do without you. So I hope to see you at the next one.